Well, it's uh, a great privilege for me to be here uh, with you. I've actually had the privilege of working with some of these musicians before, and it's delightful uh, to be able to worship God uh, together again with you. Uh, Pastor Adam or Dr. Brown or just Adam has been a friend and a colleague uh, to me in a lot of different ways over the years. Uh, our relationship is multifaceted and so I always appreciate the opportunity to sit under his ministry. He always teaches me and encourages me and I find it edifying and it's a real privilege. I know as a pastor uh, you, you go two ways uh, when you invite someone to come in and to share the ministry with people of your church. You tend to go one of two ways. You either Try to bring in someone who will build up the church and edify people. Uh, or if you have a slightly different sort of bent and temperament or character, which I think Adam and I might share, you bring in someone worse than you so that you look good in comparison. <laughs> so I, I suspect that that's probably what's going on here. Uh, and even the title of the conference, it should have been a clue to me when I said, you know what, I'd like to do a conference. I think you're the perfect guy to come up. It's called Spectacular Failures. You know, come on, come on up. You can represent that just so well. You don't even need to sp speak. Just stand there, and people will understand uh, the medium is the message. Uh, last night, actually, I'm from Guelph. Last night, I was speaking at the University of Guelph uh, with the Power to Change group on campus, and they asked me to come in and speak on the Great Commission. Uh, they, we were having a missions-focused night. And so I had uh, my case with a bunch of notes in it. I was there early. I looked over the Great Commission notes. And so I was looking over my talk for this morning, uh, an overview of the book of Judges. And the director of the Power to Change group comes in. He's a student, fourth year student, sits down next to me and says, so are those your notes? Say, yes, they are. And I showed them to him and he almost had a heart attack. He's like, what, what are you speaking on? I said, I thought I was supposed to speak on the book of Judges. And he's like, no, no, it's the Great Commission. I said, well, don't worry, we'll, we'll sort it out. You know, we'll talk about how Samson had a job to do and didn't do it properly and all of the rest. And he could just see, him. he was laughing hysterically, trying to figure out how are we going to salvage this. And at the end, he said, well, well Pastor Steve, I trust you. You know, I, I trust you. You'll, do a, you'll, you'll find a way. You know, so, uh, so it was almost a failure even then last night. Let me read for you a text from the book of Judges. It's Judges 19. This is the Word of God. Uh, this is a text that, unless you're familiar with the book, you might wonder how it can be the Word of God. There's a lot in Scripture that we tend not to talk about. Uh, there's a lot in Scripture we tend to gloss over. So how does this function as part of Scripture that's God-breathed and useful for all the things Paul says Scripture is useful for? If you're familiar with it, you know where I'm going, uh, but try to hear it with fresh ears uh, and an open mind, and, and really, I think one of the things that, cr that cripples us in understanding the Bible is we tend to have our devotional plans, we'll read a chapter, we'll close the book, we're done for the day, we feel good about ourselves, and five minutes later, we don't even remember what we've read. I'm not sure if you've ever had that experience, where you're, or, or even, it's not even five minutes, you close the Bible, and not a single word sunk in. There's just no attention paid at all uh, to the content of the material. So oftentimes we're just glossing things, we're moving by things, or in Genesis or Judges, we tend to assume, and this is a crippling assumption, but we tend to assume that if someone 
That becomes the reading. I'm, I'm convinced that our Sunday school teaching is killing kids in terms of later interpretation of the story of the patriarchs. Because Abraham does have real faith. And so we almost want to make it seem like everything Abraham does, he's a hero of the faith, it's all good somehow. And, and then Jacob, all those problems with Jacob, they're just minimized. If someone who is a hero of the faith did it, if their name is in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, everything in their life must have been good. That's nonsense. And that actually completely distorts the reading and interpretation of a lot of these texts. So, having said that, it's okay that this text is not okay. We should not try to make this somehow a sanitized message. Judges 19, this is the word of God. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the woman's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then, when the man, with his concubine and his servant, got up to leave his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But, unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jabus, that is, Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jabus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on. And the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square. But no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. 
While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So, the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up. Let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into twelve parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, Such a thing has never been seen or done not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. So speak up. What do you, what do you do with this? Richard Dawkins and some of the other new atheists will say, that this is the sort of text which proves the immorality of God. How can the Bible depict these sorts of things and justify them? Of course, the conclusion is skewed. The Bible depicts these sorts of things, but doesn't justify them. Uh, in fact, Dawkins and the other atheists, what they don't do is they don't continue to read on. Uh, in fact, in Dawkins' citation of this chapter, uh, he stops one verse short of the end, where people are horrified by what's been done. Uh, so, so it's pretty selective. But nonetheless, it does raise the question, what is going on here? I mean, what is this? How does this function? What lessons are we supposed to learn from this? What does this teach us? In order to understand this chapter, we have to stop doing something else, which is crippling our ability to interpret the Bible properly. That is, we need to stop assuming that the right unit for interpretation is always a paragraph or a chapter. Sometimes the right unit for interpretation is four or five chapters, a set, or a whole book. In fact, not only that, but what we really need to do is we need to learn how to read verses in paragraph context, sort of chapters in book context, books in sometimes what are called era or epoch context, and then epochs and eras and books and verses in what's sometimes called canonical context. It's the context of the entire canon. 
So we need to stop atomizing. We need to stop taking little bits of Scripture and trying to interpret them. We, We need to read things in terms of details in a broad framework, in a big perspective. And so I'm going to argue this morning that Judges 19, which is a horrible text, and, and I will tell you this, I know this is, this is a, you know, men, and we're not supposed to be overly sensitive. That's part of the, it's the cultural mythology of, of masculinity, uh, is that we're not to be too sensitive, we're not to be too emotional. But I'll tell you this, if you read this text and you do not feel emotionally disturbed, you haven't read it properly. You are not supposed to be unfazed or unaffected by what goes on in this text. If you are, you have not properly entered into it. You need to read it again until you do. You need to think these things through. You need to picture this in your mind. And then you need to substitute these nameless, faceless people for the people that you know and love. How would you feel if this happened to someone you knew? To your sister? To your daughter, to your wife, how would you feel? How would you feel if, if South Shore was mailed a severed arm from a woman in this city who had been prostituted and abused and then murdered? There's a horror here which is literally unimaginable. And so what's it doing? What are we supposed to learn from it? Well, I suspect that you can't properly read Judges 19 without recognizing that there's a structure in the entire book of Judges which sets up this chapter. And that structure is this. Throughout Judges, there are some commonalities. So the children of Israel will do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then the Lord will allow enemies to come in and oppress them in different ways. The people will cry out for deliverance. Now this is actually, the, this by itself is a sign of failure. The people won't cry out for deliverance until they're hurting badly enough. When things are going well, they're not crying out to God. When things are going well, they're perfectly content to sin and do whatever they want. They will worship the other gods as long as things are good. They're very pragmatic. They don't care a bit about the holiness of God. Their lives are not about God's glory. Their lives are about their own comfort. And so as long as things are fine, they'll let things slide. They'll worship the Lord for a while, but then there will be other things to do, money to be made, uh, practices that they are interested in, other deities who seem to be blessing you know, the other farmers' crops more. And so they'll sort of drift into this. Then, to show the impotence of these other gods and their lifestyle and all of the rest, God will allow enemies to come in and oppress them. The people will get to a point where they're suffering and they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And in shocking mercy, God will raise up someone who's called a judge. You're not supposed to think of judges in this context as people with black robes, you know, sitting behind a a legal bench rendering verdicts. These are almost more like, uh, you know, (laughs) I don't want to say mafia crime syndicates, although some of them are. Uh, They're like warrior deliverers, right? So yes, they will pronounce legal verdicts and and give judgments that way, but they're more deliverers. They're people who will be used militarily to defeat the enemies of God's people. So they'll be given rest for a period of time after the judge is successful, and then the cycle starts again. 
The judge delivers them. There's usually rest in that judge's life. The judge dies. The people go right back. They slide right back into what they've been doing, and the cycle repeats itself. Except, and this is critical for understanding Judges 19, except as the cycles go on, it's not exactly symmetrical. There's a definite trajectory. That is, when the people are delivered, the land has rest for shorter periods of time as the book goes on. The judges themselves, at the beginning of the book, nothing bad is really said about them. But then as you start working through the individual judges, the character of the judges gets discernibly worse as time goes on. So the judge's moral character gets worse and worse as time goes on. The deliverance is for shorter and shorter periods as time goes on until at some point you really have a hard time understanding how is this judge better than the pagans around them? And the answer is they're not. They're called by God. They're filled by the Holy Spirit. And they're filled by the Holy Spirit for action. Not the way we understand being filled by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So you have people who are really, really appallingly evil, but the Spirit of the Lord will come on them to empower them to defeat enemies in battle. But it's not like they're empowered and all of a sudden they're filled by the fruit of the Spirit. That's just not what's going on. So it's filled by the Spirit to be used by God as a tool to deliver His people. It has nothing to do with their personal godliness. In fact, Samson is the most charismatic judge. He's filled by the Holy Spirit, we're told, four times. Or four different times we're told he's filled by the Holy Spirit. That's more than any other judge. But Samson is not even remotely someone of high moral character. We'll see that in just a moment. So this is the cycle. Like chapter 1 will show you, if you have your Bibles, you should just turn to chapter 1 very quickly. We're not going to look at all of these texts. It would take too long. But just look at chapter 1 very quickly. Chapter 1, verse 1, locates the book after the death of Joshua. The Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. Now notice that clearly the Lord is assuming his sovereignty and his power and ability to drive out, to drive out the Canaanites. I will give you the land. It's not your merit. It's not your strength. It's not your power. I will give you the land. It's in my hands to give to you. Notice verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. So here you see that even though the Lord is capable of giving the land into the the hands of his people, there's a problem. They they aren't driving out the Canaanites. There's excuses for this. They have iron chariots. But you should know from Exodus that God is not dependent on his people's military strength to defeat a foe. There's a lot more going on here than just, oh, they have iron chariots. Unfortunately, Yahweh can't handle that. This is a problem not with God. This is a problem with the people. This is their excuse. Then you look at verse 29. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. So the Ephraimites aren't driving out their people. The Canaanites still live among them. Yes, the verse before says they've been suppressed into forced labor, but they've never been driven out completely. So they're a suppressed people, but not a defeated people totally. The Canaanites live amongst the Ephraimites. But verse 32 says, The Asherites 
lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. That's very interesting. The first one, it's the Canaanites are living under the Israelites, amongst the Israelites, but now it's the Israelites living amongst the Canaanites. They're less successful. And then verse 34, the Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. Well, who's dominant here? It's the Amorites. And so you even begin to see this very mixed success with Israel. They're being partly successful, but not even remotely doing all that God has called them to do. So you're set up for all kinds of danger. This is why there's so much back and forth oppression and deliverance throughout the remainder of the book. Now chapter 2 will give you the cycle which I've already talked about. The people who do evil in the eyes of the Lord, they fall into idolatry, they're, they're oppressed, they cry out, God raises up a deliverer, and they're delivered for a certain period of time. There's all these cycles of apostasy, disobedience, and then deliverance. Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the specific judges. Uh, you, you're familiar with these stories. and Actually, just, there's, there's no shame, no judgment here, just out of curiosity. How many of you um, grew up going to church? Just, just so I know, okay. So how many of you are, in, uh, and even if you didn't, you, you may be familiar with the book of Judges. So let, let me ask, ask, ask it this way. Like, how many of you are sort of familiar with the stories of, you know, Gideon, Samson, those sorts of things? How many of you are familiar with those stories? Okay. This is pretty standard sort of church, Sunday school, youth group kind of fair, okay? Because there's a lot of, there's some exciting stories here. So you have Gideon. And Gideon, you know, we get from Gideon laying out a fleece, put out a fleece before God. You remember this? That God tells him to do something, and, and Gideon, he wants a sign. Now, we take this sometimes as a model for discerning the will of God. If you want to know what the Lord wants, lay out a fleece, right? That's all very nice. But functioning here, that is not a positive model at all. God has already told him, I wa- I'm going to use you. I want you to do this job. And Gideon goes, nah, how about a sign? God, I appreciate it. Your word's not quite enough. You know, I'll do it. I'll obey your word if you, give, if you provide me with a miraculous sign that I want you to provide me with. Then I'll listen to you. That's not a model of faith. So then God does it for him. And Gideon wakes up the next day and says, you know, I'm still not going to do it unless you give me the reverse sign that I asked for yesterday. Like, this is not how you discern the will of God. This is how you try to avoid the will of God. He already knows what God has said. He's already been given the sign. Now he's laying out a different task, the opposite of what he said the first time, just to make sure. But he already knows. He already knows. This is doing his dead level best not to do what he knows God has already called him to do. Now, later on, uh, you'll remember there's a, that he, he has these elite soldiers. A lot of people, ta- I remember being taught in Sunday school, you know, that he has this big army, and then they're going to get it down to a small army. So they go down to the, to the river, and everyone who sort of is careful, who brings the water up to their mouth to drink, they're the ones, 300 of them, this becomes his, so- his soldiers. And I remember being told, like, this is sort of, it's because they paid the best attention, they would have been the best soldiers and all the rest. I'm not sure how many of you have heard it sort of cast that way. That these are the best soldiers because of how they pay attention. Is that familiar to you, that interpretation? Okay. Uh, again, that's, that's, that's lovely. It is precisely the wrong interpretation. 
the whole point is that God is going to deliver the people. He doesn't need a big army. He doesn't need elite soldiers. Like, like the message is not, God doesn't need a big army. He just needs an elite commando unit. It's Gideon. He said he was going to do this. He doesn't need any. In fact, all he, all he needs is a couple of people who can hold a torch and shatter a jug. Like, this is not your elite commando unit. You know, these are not people rushing in as assassins. These are people who throw jugs on the ground. Uh, there's no drinking criteria required in order to be able to do that. So, so this is, again, it's about God's power, not about some sort of elite task force. And then we usually leave it at that. But that's not the end of the Gideon story. Again, Gideon actually, after these events, and we can talk about his timidity as well at different points, but he succumbs to idolatry. At the end of his life, he's, he's ensnared in idolatry. And his son tries to appoint himself after Gideon's death to be a king, and he goes out, rather than Gideon's son, rather than fighting the Canaanites or even other tribes in Israel, goes out and kills all of his own brothers. That's your family. That's Gideon. At the end of his life, he's ensnared Israel in idolatry. He's raised, one, and one of his sons proclaims himself king and murders all of his brothers. That's where you are. That's, that's getting towards the middle of the book. Gideon is not a positive example in a lot of ways. But then you get to Jephthah. Remember that Israel sins again, and this time God says, I'm not going to save you, in Judges chapter 10. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. His half-brothers hate him, and so Jephthah is driven out. Jephthah leaves, and he gathers around him, it's hard, some of the different translations, a group of bad characters or scoundrels. Or It's really like today. You have to picture Jephthah as someone, um, if it's, I have to be careful, because my understanding, I'm not in these circles, but my understanding is that in Guelph, it's, 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 you know, there's a lot of mafia connections. And so I'm not going to speak any, about the mafia. You're nodding your head. You know this. Okay, I'm just gonna you just gonna move over here. Then I don't. What side of the mafia are you on? I don't know. Uh, I, we'll we'll talk afterwards. Pardon? Yeah, ironically, Guelph's so safe because of the mafia, right? Like that's a that's an interesting observation. And uh, not not I don't know how that works actually. I would have thought that's kind of counterintuitive. Um, but let's say you know if you're in a place where there's mafia, it's like Jephthah becomes a a, a mafia boss. You got all these hitmen, all, all of these thugs. Or if you went down the socioeconomic ladder to another place, you might almost want to say, like, he becomes, you know, the, the leader of a, of a, of a street gang. Uh, maybe, maybe a bike gang, depending on where you are. And, and so he and his bikers, you know, they're the ones who, they've got a lot of muscle and they don't mind, they don't mind you know, doing some dirty work. And so his brothers come to him and say, hey, hey, you've got, you've got this gang. You, you, you've got the muscle. You, you've got the weapons. How about you come help us out? And Jephthah goes, huh, interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember you wanting me around. And they go, oh, yeah, 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 but now we'll, we'll make you the leader if you come and help us out. He goes, okay. Sounds good to me. Makes a vow to God. You, do, you, you help me out. First thing out of my door, I'm going to sacrifice it to you. Jephthah is successful. He comes back. First thing out of his door is his daughter. The law had provisions for if you make a foolish vow, 
you can retract that vow provided you add monetary value to a gift to the to the ta uh, to the priest above the value of that thing so if you if you vowed you'd give your cow uh, then you decide not to you you can give something that's more valuable so you could have he could have assessed his daughter a certain monetary value in terms of you know if, if she was sold into slavery or whatever he could have given money the law provided for that if nothing else, there should have been an understanding that you don't kill an innocent person. You, 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 you repent, Lord, I'm sorry. But, but murdering is not the way to honor God. That should have been so obvious. And Jephthah kills his daughter. This is right about in the middle of the book. This is after Gideon. Gideon's son killed all of Gideon's other sons. But now the judge is killing his children himself. These are not people who are held up as models of virtue. And frankly, shame on us in Sunday school for teaching the book of Judges as if they are. Now again, you hit Hebrews 11. One of the things that's the most amazing about Hebrews 11, all these people who are named in terms of faith, is how they're there. Like, like, it's like if you read Hebrews 11, you know, all these people must have been in great faith. You go and you read your life, their life is obviously wondering, like, was, was there a typo? Like, who was the guy who was supposed to be there? Because these guys shouldn't be there at all. And one of the most incredible things is that God, by faith, as Adam was telling us, you know, he, there are huge failures in these people's lives, and yet God still uses them in incredible ways. And that is the book of Judges. He still did use these people to bring about incredible deliverance. Some of them did have legitimate faith. They really trusted God. Because at some level, it does take a lot of faith to go into battle with 300 soldiers. And the strategy is, you're way outnumbered, you're way outgunned, how about you break a pot, right? Like, that's not a strategy which is going to be conducive to making you feel confident in the leadership. But he did it. There's real faith there. There's real faith, even though there's enormous failure. And then you get to Samson. And Samson, of course, is miraculously conceived. Uh, the angel of the Lord sets him apart before birth. He's a Nazarite. That is, he can't uh, cut his hair, can't defile himself with a dead body. But he's a man who is absolutely driven by his lust. His lust for foreign women actually probably sort of functions as a metaphor for Israel's lust for foreign gods. You see this in the prophets. The prophets are always comparing uh, lust and fornication and adultery with idolatry. And so Samson sort of probably functions this way literally and also metaphorically. Uh, I remember in Sunday school being told a couple stories about Samson. You remember when he's attacked by a lion and he tears the lion apart with his bare hands. You remember that? Uh, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Now I'm not sure what era you were in. Uh, some of you look like you're around my age, uh, so you probably recall, uh, did you have flannel graphs in Sunday school? You remember flannel graphs? And like, if you have a flannel graph, Samson, you know, nice, perfect locks, you know, brown flowing locks, obviously looking like someone who would have been painted by a Renaissance painter because clearly Samson looked like a European in the 1500s. And so you have that, you know, the long flowing hair and the rippling muscles so, made somewhat like myself that way. And, and so you get this, you know, this lion springing on him and, and he's, and it's, it's so cool. And I don't know what we're trying to tell our kids. Hey kids, cool. Like, like, 
being a Christian must be really cool. Look, there was this guy with long hair who killed a lion. Like, that's pretty neat, right? Like, let's read the Bible. Like, that's usually what we're trying to do. Like, we're trying to get our kids excited about these things somehow. Now, he comes, now what happens, though, with the lion is, is what? A week later, he's passing by, and bees have made a nest. There's honey. And for us, we're so familiar, we're just so used to buying sweet things and processed things and going to the grocery store. We don't realize what a find this is. There's nothing better than honey in an agrarian culture before you have refining and processing and sugarcane and all of the rest. This is, this, is a, this is a rich thing. And so he takes them and he eats it. And then he takes them to his parents. They eat it. But he was never supposed to touch a corpse. See, he violates his vows. He doesn't care a bit about being clean. He doesn't care a bit about holiness. He doesn't care at all. He just did it for his stomach. And he doesn't, and the text is, he did not tell his parents where he got it from. That's, you're told that, not because he was just a kind of a silent guy. You're told it because he knew it was wrong. And he didn't care a bit about his parents' cleanliness either. He doesn't care a bit about anyone. Now then you start working through, you know, all the sordid stories of, you know, burning fields down and murdering people and all the rest. But one of the great stories is when he's trapped in the city and he tears off the city gates. Remember this story? He tears off the city gates and he carries them a long way out of town and drops them. And in Sunday school, I remember being taught you know, about just how, how, how great, how heavy these gates were and how strong he must have been and it's so impressive and all the rest. But I never remember being taught why he was caught in that city. Why was he stuck in that city? He went in to sleep with a prostitute. He has sex with a prostitute. They lock the city gates. He's stuck inside. He gets up, tears off the city gates, and marches away. That whole scene was never part of the flannel graph experience in Sunday school. Right? We're just interested in it. We want to see the glory parts of it. But why was he there? That's the context. In other words, what's he using his strength for? Is he using his strength for Israel? No. He's literally using the gift God has given him to satisfy his sexual desire and then to escape. That's what he's doing. There's not even a hint that this is for God. There's not even a hint that this is for Israel. This is all for him. You know what happens with Delilah. He doesn't know that the Lord has left him. He, he, he's caught. His eyes are put out. He's blinded. And at the very end, you know, as, as he's a servant, he's a slave in the temple of the foreign god, he puts his hands on the pillars. Lord, strengthen my hands one more time. Pushes them over. A couple thousand people die. And we're told that Samson did more in his death than in his life. Also, just one other quick thing. You know, when, when Samson kills the Philistines with, with the jawbone of the donkey, this may seem relatively obvious, but the jawbone of a donkey, you only have access to it if you're touching a skeleton, which again is, ex which is, again is expressly forbidden by his vows. Yet God still uses him. God still allows him, even though he's defiling again by touching an unclean thing. He's again disgracing his vows. God still uses him. That's not about his strength. That is about the sheer grace and mercy of God. 
that the Holy Spirit comes on him and the Holy Spirit uses him even though he acts in such a way that he violates the ban about touching anything dead or unclean. He does more in his death than in his life. Now, I, I will just say this. I think we need to recognize for us that Samson was called in a very special way. He had a special calling on his life. And then he engaged in all kinds of sexual sin. And don't think that Judges is telling you all of the examples. It's just giving you a little bit so that you have a flavor of who this person is. Someone who goes into a city and has sex with a prostitute is probably not someone who has an exemplary moral life, except for that one mistake. Okay? So you're just being shown enough to get a flavor of who, this sort of, of who he is. And there are horrible consequences. There, there are horrible consequences in his life and for the nation of Israel because of the, his sin. But in the end, even through his shame and his brokenness, in the end, God still has a purpose for him. And in the end, God is able to use him to accomplish more at the very end of his life when you never would have thought it was possible. Here's a guy who had everything going for him imaginable. He had a body like mine. He was specially called by God. I mean, he, he was used by God despite his failures. It's, it's an amazing thing. But there he is, sexually immoral, broken, exhausted, destroyed because of his lust. His we, he, he's weak now. His gifts are gone. He's useless. He's blind. He's a slave. He's mocked. He's engaging in nothing but drudgery. And yet, somehow, at the end of his life, through all of that, God is going to say, Samson, I am going to use you more at the very end than in all of those other years put together. That's an incredible thing. And I don't know where, where you are. Maybe, maybe you're in a good cycle in your life. Thank God for it if you are. Maybe, maybe you're going through a, a difficult time of, of struggling and, and failing with sin of different kinds. Maybe you're not even struggling anymore because you've stopped struggling. You're, you're just giving into it. You're, you're, it's just part of what, you're, what you are now, the way Samson just gave into things. Or maybe you feel like you're just in such a broken place that you're like a, a slave in a temple of a pagan god. There's no hope for you at all. And, and even getting up every day is hard. I was talking to a friend this week, and honestly, we, he, he's a pastor, and uh, we both said, you know, we, we both know what it's like to, to go to bed. And... And if you were able to sort of sign, a, sign something saying, you know what, God's going to take me in my sleep and, and I'm not waking up tomorrow, I'd do that. <laughs> there, there are some days where you, you, you know, you're not, you're, not, you're not thinking about taking your own life. You're not suicidal that way. But, man, if it could just be the end, just painlessly ease out of this, I'd take it. There, there, there are some days when and that sounds pretty good. Maybe you're somewhere like that. Maybe you're, you're somewhere where you say, you know what, it's just so hard. Day after day, it's worse, it gets worse and worse. I just, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. Maybe you'll walk through some really difficult things. 
And the truth is, in a room like this with this number of guys, if we were honest, we could get a lot of guys sharing about a lot of difficult periods in their life that they walked through where they had no idea how God was going to work. But as long as you're still in this world, the last word hasn't been written. There's still more. What's God going to do at the end? We don't know. There may be a lot of really hard things to go through before then. So Judges is setting up this cycle. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse until you hit Judges 19. Right before Judges 19, you've had uh, a, a Levite. Remember, the Levites are supposed to be leading the people religiously. Uh, religiously, 17 and 18 is about the, more, the, the religious failure of the Levites. They start practicing the, in, in sort of private homes, worshiping idols. Then it's a Levite who cuts up his concubine. So what you see is that the religious leaders in Judges, at the end of Judges, the religious leaders are leading the people in religious and moral and social failure. They're the ones, the ones who are supposed to be doing the opposite. This would be like today, it's, it's the pastors and the Bible college professors and the missionaries who are leading the way in pagan idolatry and immorality. Israel has reached a place where it's actually safer to be with pagans than in the cities of the covenant community. Jerusalem has not yet been taken to belong to Israel. David will do that. So when they come to Jabus or Jerusalem, it's a pagan city. Let's spend the night in the pagan city. No, we can't spend the night with pagans. You know what they're like. Let's go to one of the cities of Israel. And they do. They go to Gibeah in Benjamin. This is the, 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 one of the beautiful tribes. If you're safe anywhere, it should be in Benjamin, in this city, in this place. And then something happens where they're brought in, and the wicked men of the town surround the house, and they yell out about, uh, you know, bring out this man so we can have sex with him. And you're supposed to hear an echo of what? What does that remind you of? Exactly. This is Sodom. This is Sodom. Israel is Sodom. That's the point. But what happens in Sodom? Who's, a, who's, a, who's raped? No one. In fact, Israel is worse than Sodom. The nobility of this man. Oh, no, don't do anything to this man. He's my guest. Let me send out my daughter. Do whatever you want to her. She's just a woman. Who cares? Send her out. And this man's concubine? Do whatever you want to her. We don't care. J just, just not me and my guest. The downward spiral of this is utterly unthinkable. At the end of Judges, the message of the book is that things have spiraled so far out of control that Israel is literally worse than Sodom. What happened to Sodom? What's God going to do? You expect God's going to do the same thing. You expect that God will obliterate these people and this city from the face of the earth. It almost happens, but through the wrong way. The people in the last few chapters will decide we can't allow this to happen and they, call, and they have a civil war 
to the point where the Benjamites are so decimated that now they have to figure out how are we going to get wives through these people or else this whole tribe is going to disappear. So then their solution is, well, we'll just kidnap some women and force them to be their wives. I mean, the whole thing is this, it's this utter nightmare. It's utterly unthinkable. It's so dysfunctional. It's so broken. You could not have a more wicked or immoral society. You couldn't. It's unthinkable. It's worse than Sodom. There's no hope at all. It's all divided into civil war, and everything is absolutely falling apart. Everything. It's beyond imagination. That's the message of Judges. And it ends with one little note. In those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Israel had no king. Israel had no king. Israel had no king. As if what Israel really needs maybe is just the right king. These judges are obviously not the final solution. These judges are clearly not the people who are going to actually bring about holy living in Israel. Maybe we'll be better if we just have a king. That by itself is an incredible thing. Because what it means is, when God calls a people into covenant with himself, he's not going to obliterate them like Sodom, even when they're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. This book is the most screaming testimony to the grace of God, even though that language isn't used anywhere in Judges. It is absolutely, utterly filled with grace. If it was works, if it was merit, it would end with fire and brimstone. There would have been no Judges 20. There would have been no continuity. There would never be David. You would never have gotten there. But there is. Because despite the failure of the Judges, categorically, God is going to bring the right king eventually who's going to be the king of kings and lord of lords, the great judge and deliverer of all the earth, his son, Jesus Christ. God will not allow his covenant purposes to falter or fail, no matter how great the wickedness of his old covenant people. His patience and mercy and grace is unlimited and unbelievable. And that's the message to take away from judges, not, oh, Good thing that God raised up really godly people like Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. Like, if it wasn't for those people, there'd be a lot of trouble. It's, can you believe God used people like that and still was faithful to his covenant promises? And if he was like that then, then the truth is for us. He can be that for us too. Despite our sin, despite our failure, despite our shame, God will fulfill his covenant promises through us by his grace and for his glory. I'm just going to ask, uh, maybe I'll just pray, and then you're going to come up. Father, we thank you uh, for the time we've had so far this morning. I just pray that you'll help us, uh, again, to understand your word clearly. Uh, help us to take away from it what we ought to take away from it. Bless our time uh, uh, in terms of fellowship as well. Uh, I pray that uh, throughout the remainder of the day we will be able to strengthen and edify one another. Thank you for your grace. We commit ourselves to you not by our merit, but uh, in accord with your mercy through Christ. Amen.